Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Government debt, government refunding. Is the level of government debt and private debt, is it endangering the growth of the U.S. economy? Here to tell us more is Joel Stern. He is the chairman and the chief executive officer of Stern Value Management. Joel Stern, thank you very much for being in our 1130 studio. It's a pleasure to have you here. So answer this question for us. The level of government debt is causing a lot of people to opine uh, about the future prospects for growth. What's your thought? Well, they are wrong. They are wrong. There are two ways you can tell. Take a look at real interest rates. If the level of debt, look, if the bond rating of a company goes down, what do you think happens to the rate of interest they pay? It goes skyward. The 30-year government bonds, they're yielding 3.13% or something. So there's got to be a retort to that, and I'll tell you what it is. Please. You don't look at book value. You look at market value. The market value of assets in the United States, not just the stock market. Hey, real estate, uh, gold, diamonds, all kinds of assets. They're very, very high. If you take a look at the debt ratio, the amount of debt in relation to the market value of the assets we have, the debt ratio has actually gone down quite considerably. Okay, so Joel, you're making an argument saying that it is perfectly fine for the U.S. Treasury Department to be selling uh, a record amount of debt each quarter going forward for a while, right? So you're about new debt, right? New debt, yes, new debt, okay, new debt. Right. additional issuance. Right. Uh, so given that argument, we got the Treasury funding announcement earlier today. Do you think they ought to be selling longer dated debt and more of that because they're focusing so much on the front end with the new two-month uh, two uh, note as well? Well, keep in mind that government debt, as I understand it, has no call protection. Whatever rate of interest for whatever period of time, you're stuck with it in the government. Well, we we as citizens are stuck with it, okay? We can't call the debt and retire it early, okay? We can buy it up in the marketplace, right. but there's no call protection. I remember back in the early 80s when the, gut, when the inflation rate was very, very high under Reagan. He inherited that. It was something like 12%. Well, would you believe 30-year government bonds were suddenly being offered at 15.2%? Okay, 15.2%. Well, what does that mean? It means that the government officials, the economists, they believe that the high inflation was going to continue for the next 30 years. Okay, and uh, Beryl Sprinkle, who was the Undersecretary of the Treasury, I called him at that time and I said, hey, Beryl, what do you think? He said, I'm not, I'm not a risk taker on this. I'm just a government official. I don't have any bonuses paid to me based on whether or not my guesses are right. Okay. Whatever the market wants, that's what I'm going to do. All right, it's one thing if it's 15.5%. I'm looking at 3.1% right. for 30-year U.S. <clears throat> yields right now. Yes. You're suggesting that the U.S. not necessarily issue 30-year debt at these types of yields because they could go lower. Is that correct? No, I, I would say that I would not be a betting person that for the next 30 years, we're not going to have any significant inflation, and therefore I'll get paid back in cheaper dollars. If I were the U.S. government, I would never have gone to the root of the 10-year. I would have stayed with the 30-year. 
because the difference right now, for example, between the 10-year and the 30-year is a drop in the bucket. It's about 15 basis points. Well, at that rate, for goodness sake, they should be borrowing as much 30-year money as they can get. And they should be refinancing short-term money into that because I believe that the economy, as you know, is going to be stronger going forward. I think we could have growth rates of between three and three quarters and four and a quarter percent. And if we do, interest rates are going to be higher. And if they are higher, take a look at the budget. I mean, uh, the interest is something like 7% of the entire uh, federal budget. So we don't want it to become 12% or 15% simply because the rates go up. Let's lock the rates in now. Will the Federal Reserve raise interest rates consistent to what uh, economists are predicting three, maybe four times? Yes, I think so. But keep in mind that right now, because short-term rates have already been increasing, the Fed has to raise the interest rate they charge banks. Otherwise, the banks are going to get another subsidy. They don't deserve it. In other words, so they can borrow at the discount window. They have to raise the discount rate just to keep it competitive with Treasury rates. Otherwise, the banks have an unfair advantage. So I'm trying to understand if you're uh, saying... And you've been consistent in this, and frankly, you've been right, that the U.S. economy will continue to accelerate. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you make of the earnings that we've gotten so far, particularly Caterpillar, which sort of was the uh, key moment in this earnings season coming out and saying this may be as good as it gets? I am not one for taking a look at one quarter. Okay, You've got to take a look at this thing over a period of quarters and see what's really happening. Keep in mind, too, the slashing of the tax rate is one big effect. There's a slight offset, though. Remember? What did, uh, what did uh, uh, Trump do with regard to capital expenditures? You write off the capital expenditures all in the current year. Remember, we would normally depreciate them over time. Well, one of the ways they thought to stimulate the economy would be an immediate write-off, and it would be. But the question is then, what happens to comparability on accounting information if you're measuring return on investment or whatever? Now the investment is lower because it's been written off immediately, and the profits are lower because it's been written off against the profits. So it's going to be, we're going to go through a period when we're going to have comparables against the prior year for corporations that are not going to be very meaningful. I would like to ask the people at Caterpillar, to what extent was the new tax law, if it had any effect at all, and to what extent the tax law is going to have an effect in the future? And that's true for all capital-intensive companies. I want your thoughts on inflation and why we seem to be at maybe 2% inflation officially, and yet you talk to anybody, their perception is inflation is much higher. Uh, No, no, you have to talk to me. Inflation is much lower. Can I tell you why? Very interesting. Let's assume the price of peas goes up, and you switch to string beans, and say string beans have not yet gone up. Then the average price you pay is not as high as the index indicates. In other words, the the index assumes that the market basket of goods and services that people buy is unchanged. There's another reason. I remember I was on the board of a company called Vivitar. We made lenses, flash equipment, 35-millimeter cameras. And one of our board members walked in and said, look at this. And he showed us the new Sony camera that had no film in it. Okay? And he goes, click, click, click. He takes a few photographs. And I said, "Where is the film in there? Oh, no, no film, just a microprocessor. I said, how much does that camera cost? Uh, 2400 I see. And when do you think it'll come down to a decent price? Oh, it'll get down to 800 within a year, and maybe it'll be down to 300 in a few years. But here's the problem. People start then buying it big time. And guess what happens? It's not yet in the market basket. And by the time they put it in the market basket, 
all those price declines that take place from the 2400 down to the 300 they never show up anywhere. Uh, keep in mind, too, we're getting improvements in the iPhone or in the uh, other phones. Uh, and the result is we're not, it's not being priced in to the consumer price index, I'm suggesting. And, and it's difficult to do it. Don't get me wrong. I feel badly for the Commerce Department and the Bureau of Labor Statistics because it's difficult to do these calculations. And at the same time, we have to realize that the inflation rate is almost permanently overstated. Joel Stern, we love having you on. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Lisa. Joel Stern, Chairman and Chief Executive of Stern Value Management, a uh, very uh, respected person in the market, a uh, long-term voice who uh, is uh, sounding a note of optimism among all this caution and concerns that the best is behind us and uh, woe upon this credit cycle. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with my co-host, Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Oh, Apple, the gift that ends up giving despite people's uh, doubt about whether or not it could deliver. Here to talk about the earnings and what's to come, John Butler, Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us in our 1130 studios. John, is there anything negative here or was this just an all out and out amazing, wonderful blockbuster that shows that even though Apple is tied to a smartphone, it doesn't matter. They can still blow it out of the water. There was not a lot to worry about this. Quarter. Come on, find I have something. To say, they <laughs> defied the skeptics. Um, you know, rolling into the quarter, there were all these reports coming out of the supplier community that Apple was cutting orders for the iPhone X, uh, iPhone 10, I should say. And there was a lot. The concern was at that iPhone 10 is helping Apple bring up the average selling price of the iPhone. So as unit shipments slow, if your average price is going up, you're going to get nice revenue gains. And we saw that this past quarter, right? iPhone shipments were up around 3%, but the revenue grew 14%. And I think what really encouraged people was Cook's commentary that the iPhone 10 has been the best-selling iPhone in every week since its launch, and that has never been the case in the past with a new phone. That, that really is a record for them. And I hate to use the word record because every company has record quarters and record this and record that. It gets overused and overblown, but I think it's really fair to take note of that. I think that's an important trend here because it lends confidence in the fact that there is a market for a thousand dollar plus phone, and I think the iPhone 10 is proving that. It's Pim's. It's Pim's family, right? Huh. Uh, <laughs> margins. <laughs> mar mar can you tell me about margins? So the margins were flat. If you look behind the curtain, what's going on with Apple and a lot of other companies is you've had uh, memory costs rising pretty considerably, and they were asked about it on the call, and the answer was, we really believe we've sort of seen the peak in in NAND and DRAM prices, which are the memory chips. And so margins should improve going forward. The one thing I looked at in particular is I'm very focused on that Apple margins, or I'm services revenue, pardon me, and their potential to expand margins because they're very, those sales are very accretive to Apple's margins. So as services increase as a percent of revenue, I think it's going to bring the margin up. How about the inventory levels? 
the inventory levels, according to the CFO, were higher, by the way, uh, five to seven weeks versus normal channel inventories of four to six. And the answer was we did some buying to take advantage of some component costs. So they were stockpiling at moments during the quarter, I think, when they thought they had an advantage on chip prices. Spot market was, as you know, Pim, with spot market prices, they move all over the place. They sort of chose their points and bought components and, and built to those um, those purchases. So I want to talk about share buybacks because the numbers kind of blew me out of the water this morning. Uh, they announced $100 billion of additional share repurchases, but they also showed that the amount of money that they spent on their own shares in the first quarter was equal to all of the shares of any one of 275 members of the S&P 500. At what point is this uh, counterproductive in the sense that, yes, they're returning shareholder money, but they're not investing in anything new or acquiring any other companies that could potentially uh, diversify their business away from the smartphone? I share that concern. That's really my only answer there is I saw the size of the buyback and I thought, you know, I realize to them, Apple shares are attractive, but there have to be higher return projects out there, higher return potential acquisitions, particularly since Siri in particular has sort of lagged its its rivals, Google Assistant, for example. Why aren't they out buying companies that are doing natural language processing better than they are or AI? Um you know, a lot of the companies in those areas are very small, so it doesn't take a lot to buy them. But I'm with you. I think they should have kept some dry powder for M&A. Go ahead. Well, I just, I think it was uh, up from $75 billion that most people thought it was going to be the announced share buyback. So they actually increased. They went over what people right. were expecting with right. capital returns. So just to put it into perspective, it's not just that they were returning capital to shareholders as people expected. They blew the estimates out of the water. Right. I don't know. Right. So again, I was a little bit concerned about that in the in for the same reason you are, which is you know, they could do a transformative acquisition here, not that they need to transform, but they could diversify more. Uh in the latest quarter, for example, iPhone sales were 62% of the total and probably a much higher percent of profits. So they're still highly dependent on a single consumer pro electronics product line. So I'd love to see more diversification there, particularly in services, too. I didn't mention that. They could make some key acquisitions there, content perhaps. We've got to have you back. We've got much more to talk about with thanks, Apple. Ben. Always. Uh, thanks very much, John Butler. We found something to worry about. There's always something to worry about. John Butler, Senior Telecom Services Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Much appreciated. The fund that our next guest manages is up more than 6% so far this year. I want to introduce Will Pruitt. He is Portfolio Manager of the Fidelity Latin America Fund. The symbol there is FLATX. That's F-L-A-T-X. 
and it has about $650 million of assets, and he is based in Boston but joins us here in our 1130 studios. Uh, Will, thanks very much for, for coming in. Maybe just give people a little bit of your background as to how you came to manage this particular fund. Sure. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Um, so I joined Fidelity 10 years ago. Um, you know, spent the first uh, eight years looking at various sectors. So did a couple of years in global consumer, looked at the beverage and tobacco stocks, luxury goods companies, um, then spent a few years looking at the uh, commodity space, so the metals and miners, um, and then another couple of years looking at emerging market financials, and then two years ago took over took over this fund. All right, so let's dig into Latin American equities. Uh, obviously, emerging markets had been on a tear, uh, have seen a little bit more of a soft patch of late. Uh, I want to talk about a couple countries in particular. Let's start with Mexico. A lot of question marks right now. We're heading into the election that mm -hmm. is highly contentious. What's your outlook? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the recent polls, AMLO, so Lopez Obrador, um, is in the lead by a lot. Um, and, you know, the election's in a couple of months. So, you know, I think that the odds are increasing that um, that, that, that he's going to win that election. Um, you know, NAFTA uncertainties continue. Um, you know, I don't really have a call on what's going to happen with, with NAFTA or with the election. So how do you how do you actually bet on specific companies if you don't have a call on these massive macro issues? Yeah, good question. So I, I look at good. I'm looking for good quality businesses at cheap valuations. There are a lot of great companies in Mexico and there are a lot of cheap companies in Mexico, but there are not a lot of great cheap companies in Mexico. So I'm underweight that market anyway, just given the lack of value that I see there. So I don't really need to make a call on these macro issues. Um, what I'm really hoping is, you know, if um, if AMLO is elected or if there's a negative resolution to, to to NAFTA that the market comes down and I get the opportunity to pick up some of these some of the local equities at, at cheap values. Talk, just to give an example of a couple of equities, you have a uh, credit uh, company, credit finance company in yep. the portfolio from yep. Mexico. Plus, uh, I believe also you have a, sort of a medical lab uh, company as well. Yeah. I mean, so um, in Mexico, I, the sector that I'm most overweight is financial services. Um, so I'm not sure if you're talking about Credit Real, yes. which is one. Yeah. So uh, financial services in Mexico are very underpenetrated. It's one of the most underpenetrated markets in the world for, for credit products. So that is a small cap company which does payroll lending to government employees. So very secured um, kind of lending, um, been able to grow quite quickly at very high returns historically. And that stock, um, I think, is either the most or or one of the, the, the least expensive, maybe bottom two or three uh, stocks within, the, within that market. So I think it's a good quality company, very, very cheap. Um, with good growth prospects. Let's head south. Let's go to Brazil, because uh, this is uh, an economy that has been in turmoil and been in the deepest recession mm -hmm. uh, forever. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. what's your what's your approach to uh, Brazil? Are you overweight, underweight? And uh, what can you illuminate? For yeah, us? so I'm, I'm overweight Brazil. Um, since when? Since end of 2016. So after Temer came in and they were able to pass the first fiscal reform um, so I've been overweight that market. So you look at Brazil, what's really interesting about Brazil is it's the only major economy in the world, which is early cycle. So every other market in, in the world, at least significant one, is mid or late cycle. Brazil, all the economic indicators are showing now is recovering from this recession. So you look at unemployment, inflation, uh, interest rates. Pim, he's basically confidence. saying it can't get any worse. <laughs> well, that, but it's a good place to start. That, that, yeah. that, that, and I think that that's a relevant point because it is difficult 
for many people to recognize that you want to be purchasing quality assets when no one else believes they are quality assets. You don't want to buy them when everybody is already aboard. Absolutely. I mean, paying top dollar, and this is why I think just being aware of where you are in the cycle matters. Like, I'm not trying to call cycles, but if you are at uh, an early cycle um, stage and you can find cheap assets or even mid-cycle multiples on, on assets at early cycle, that's a great place to fish. If you are late cycle and you're paying top dollar, that's bad. All right. So uh, is Brazil where you're most overweight right now? It is. It is. So within Brazil, I mean, the financial space, I think, is very interesting. The banks there are exceptional. Um, it's interesting. Like you compare emerging markets versus developed markets. In developed markets, banks are now at least so-so businesses, sometimes cover the cost of capital, sometimes they don't. Brazil, consolidated market, high margins, great businesses. So I'm trying to get a sense, given the uh, trade war concerns, where is Latin America as a bet. And I know you're completely biased because you focus entirely on yes, this region. Correct, correct. But, you know, where in the cycle, if you could say, uh, yeah. is the region? I mean, it's, it's a more important issue for Mexico, obviously, compared with Brazil. So Brazil exports uh, commodities for the most part. Uh, they're not a big finished good exporter. And the commodities are metals, um, commodity, um, soft commodities. So uh, pulp and paper, uh, soy, corn, that kind of thing. Uh, they export everywhere. Uh, China's a big customer, but they also export to Europe and the U.S., um, yeah. So you don't think it's going to be that big of an issue? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, they could, you could argue that they would they, they would benefit from the trade spat between the U.S. and China, right? Because if China is putting tariffs on imported soy from the U.S., Brazil is actually the largest soy exporter in the world. It's going to help them. All right. Uh, Will Pruitt, thank you so much for uh, being with us and coming in from Boston. Portfolio manager for the Fidelity Latin American Fund, uh, managing about $650 million of assets. And he is headed to Chile in less than a week. Have a great flight. Welcome to the Meghan economy. I'm talking about the marriage between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, uh, which has the potential to transform the fashion industry, uh, if not forever, perhaps for a few years. Uh, joining us now, James Fallon, editorial director for Women's Wear Daily, joining us here in our 1130 studios. James, thank you so much for being here. So uh, tell us about the Meghan economy and just how significant this marriage will be uh, to uh, retailers and other fa in the fashion World. I think it'll be very significant. The initial projections by a UK consultancy were that the marriage would inject 500 million pounds, so 600 plus million dollars into the British economy. They immediately raised that and they're now expecting it to be almost a billion pounds. Um, and anything that Meghan Markle wears more or less flies off the shelves or gets backordered on online, etc. So... Okay, so let's put this into context. Prince Harry is not going to be king unless uh, his brother dies, right? So well, he's sixth in line. Now, he's sixth so in line, right? So he's there's his brother and five other right, <laughs> and five other people have to go before he becomes king. <laughs> Meghan Markle is a an American divorcee yeah. uh, who is older than him, yeah. and they're getting married in a relatively private affair. Uh, not a lot of media is going to be allowed. Does this affect the economic impact or is the fascination with uh, soon-to-be Princess Markle uh, too significant? It's, it's The fascination is too significant. I mean, they're going to be tracking it one way or the other, and I'm sure the British 
coverage is already breathless and it will become even more breathless as they build up to the May 19th date um, as the American coverage will become more breathless too. So I, it'll be significant. And then you're also seeing Prince Harry in a way is more popular than Prince William, even though Prince William is heir to the throne. I think everybody kind of identifies with the bad boy image a little bit of Prince Harry. He's very personable. Um, and you're also seeing a difference where, you know, as much of an impact as Catherine Middleton has had, she now has three children. She's not an actress. Meghan Markle is an actress. So uh, the public being fickle will immediately switch their attitude and focus on Meghan and poor Kate will be like, oh, she's a mother. Who cares? <laughs> wow. Way harsh. <laughs> They're Jay, tough over there. Yeah, clearly. Uh, okay, I've got the uh, the bride uh, bridebook.co.uk uh, countdown clock here. Uh, 16 days, 20 hours, 15 minutes to the royal wedding. Estimated cost about $43 million. One of those costs is supposed to be uh, two dresses, the wedding dress that uh, the bride will wear plus the dress that she will then wear in the evening celebration. Estimated cost there about $400,000. Yes. Who will make the dress? That's the $400 million question. Ah, okay. um, I mean, that's the question. I mean, the, the odds makers at the moment have this British designer Ralph and Russo is the sh is one of the shortlists. Um, it was a designer named Airdem for a while, but he seems to have faded. No one will know 100% until she steps out of the carriage and they get that brief photo of her. Um, and it can have a significant impact. It will have a significant impact on whatever that person's business is. Whether that impact lasts remains to be seen. I mean, the Emmanuels who designed... Princess Diana's wedding dress built a career that lasted maybe 15 years, and Elizabeth Emanuel still designs. But the, the, it then kind of disappeared. Um, if I give you a quiz to name the designer of Sarah Ferguson's wedding dress, I dare to say neither of you could probably say that. You're although... talking to such the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn Kachirak yes, right. is her name. Um, and she had a career. So, but Who you do know, you think will... Be the design. I think probably it, it might be Ralph and Russo. I think that that's the sort of focus that everybody's on. But again, people are saying maybe it won't be a British designer. Maybe I, I it has to almost be a British designer. What she may do is she may go transatlantic. So the designer of the wedding dress might be British and the designer of the evening dress might be American. Let's talk, besides the wedding dresses, just sort of the uh, fury over anything that she wears, uh, just out and about. Have we already seen the Megan effect in oh, the 100%. Economy? I so, mean, particularly with a lot of the younger Canadian labels she wore, because remember, Suits was filmed in Toronto, so she sort of took up a lot of young Canadian brands. Um, and I mean, one of them was, uh, I jotted down a note. One of them was uh, this brand called Mackage. And so she wore a, a suit from them and they saw 1.6 billion impressions after that, like boom. And I mean, it's just phenomenal, the impact that she has. And she knows how to wear, I mean, it sounds kind of wrong, but she knows how to wear clothes. I mean, she looks very stylish. She looks fabulous. Yeah, she's a so, beautiful woman right. and she wears them well yeah, and she, wears she carries well. herself well. Yeah. And so she's a good model. Yeah. No. And I think, I think that she's bringing up, again, not being critical of Kate Middleton, but you know, 
because she's you, a mother. Well, no, Full but disclosure, she's, you're talking no, to a mother. Kate Middleton was not an actress. <laughs> yeah, you know, she was true. just a, quote, normal person. So, you know, she looks very stylish in clothes. But you're, you're dealing with someone now in Meghan Markle who is used to being in the public eye. And I think that's the difference. Uh, estimate of 4,000 guests, 17,000 glasses of champagne and wine, 28,000 canapes, and an eight-tier banana cake. I, I'm intrigued by the banana cake. See? That's very odd. Yes. Okay. Uh, I think the um, I'd be surprised if it's only um, so little champagne because they didn't. <laughs> well, the drinks are estimated to cost about two hundred and sixty thousand dollars. Yes. Yeah. Will uh, will there be souvenirs? Of course, that will. Uh, oh, a hundred. I mean, and I think that's part of the billion pounds. Business, right? Yeah, that's part of the billion pounds. You'll have the plates. You'll have the cups. You'll have the hats. You'll have whatever. The hats and are the, the yeah. bespoke silver-plated fanfare trumpets, as well as a drone destroyer for security. Well, I want to I want to talk about uh, the royal wedding and whether there's anything comparable in the U.S. or whether this is its own beast when it comes to its effect on the fashion world. There really isn't anything comparable. I don't think that um, where you have one person trickling down and having that impact. I mean, you have celebrities, of course, who, you know, Beyonce or whomever, who have their own clothing lines and can influence it. But there really isn't anything where there's one event that everybody looks at and it's like, oh, my God, do we care what dress she's wearing? You know, the Oscars, yes, but those are every year. Other than the Canadian brands, just real quick, are there any other brands that have benefited from Meghan Markle? I mean, she's worn J. Crew, and and that's buckled up. She's she's worn Jason Wu, um, and it will be interesting to see how she mixes the the balance because you know she will be a British princess. So how does she mix the balance of promoting Britain, but also remaining American? Well, we've got 16 days and 20 hours and 15 minutes to find out. Our thanks to James Fallon. Now 14? Fallon. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Don't rush it. They're still sewing. James Fallon, Editorial Director, Women's Wear Daily. Thank you very much for being with us and uh, enlightening us about this upcoming royal wedding. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.